Section 4 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. June 28th. I slept very little last night, and this morning made an excuse to go up to town with the letter. Larkin had telephoned me that he had an inquiry on the house through Cameron, and this gave me a pretext. Jane at first wished to go with me, but Edith coaxed her into helping with the rooms over the boathouse, and I finally got away. Larkin is impressed with the letter, but does not necessarily see its connection with Uncle Horace's death. After all, he said, you've got your medical man's statement that he died of heart failure. Suppose he was scared to death. That isn't a crime in law. And you've got to remember the old gentleman was pretty much of a pepper pot. He attacked me almost as violently as that once for my politics. He didn't threaten you with the police, did he? No, he recommended a sanitarium, I think. You haven't an idea who it's meant for, you say? Not the slightest. He hadn't any friends, intimates, so far as I know. The Livingstons, very decent people, with a big place about six miles from him, his doctor and myself, that's about all. Enormity of the idea, he read again. Of course, that might be a new poison gas, or this thing the press is always scaring up, the death ray. Some fellow with a bee in his bonnet, you may be sure. That wouldn't apply danger to himself. Any fellow with a bee in his bonnet is dangerous, he said, and give me back the letter. Of course, he went on. You've made a nice point about the stain on the corner. If it's blood, it's hardly likely he got up again and put it where you found it. But I think you'll find the servant there, what's her name, picked it up in her excitement and threw it into the drawer. People don't always know what they do at such times. However, if you like, I'll have that stain tested and see what it is. I tore off the corner and left him putting it carefully into an envelope. He glanced up as I prepared to go. What's this I hear about your keeping off demons by drawing some sort of a cabalistic design around yourself? He asked. You'd better let me in on it. I need a refuge now and then. Which proves that a man may shout the eternal virtues and be unheard forever, but if he babbles nonsense in a wilderness it will travel around the world. Nevertheless, I am the better for the talk with him. I have been too closely consorting with my womankind, probably. The most virile man can become effeminized in time. And Larkin's attitude as to renting the house is an eminently sane one. Rent it without saying anything, he said, and ten to one whoever takes it will have a peaceable summer. But do as you suggest. Tell the tenant the place has the reputation of being haunted, and the ghosts will be as thick as mosquitoes from the start. He has asked for some photographs of the property, and I have promised them for the day after tomorrow. We have settled down into our routine here very comfortably. Our eggs and milk are brought each morning by a buxom farmer's daughter, one Maggie Morrison, a sturdy red-cheeked girl who drives in a small truck and backs and turns before the lodge rather than circle around the main house. Surely, I said to her yesterday, you aren't afraid of the place in daylight. Not afraid, she said but it gives me the shivers, and weakened that somewhat by her statement that she never liked a place where there had been a death. Yet she handles callously the cold corpses of her chickens, pulling up their poor rigid wings to show the tenderness of the dead skin beneath, and bending their stilled breastbones to prove that they have died young. With the lawns cut and the shrubbery trimmed, the place grows increasingly lovely. At low tide, the beach is covered with odds and ends from the mysterious life of the sea, red and white starfish, sea urchins, and disintegrated jellyfish. Seagulls pick up mussels, hover over a flat-topped rock, drop them onto its surface, and then swoop down upon the broken shell with a warning cry to other gulls to keep away. So clear was the water this afternoon that, rowing to the old sloop, I could see the barnacles encrusting it and the long strings of kelp which hang from it like green and matted hair. Edith, bare-armed and slim in the canoe, paddled around it appraisingly. Needs a shave and a haircut, she decided. The boathouse is ready for young Halliday. She has put in it a great deal of love and one or two of my most treasured personal possessions. That isn't by any chance my smoking stand. But you aren't going to smoke much this summer, Father William, she says, and tucks a hand into my arm. I heard you say so yourself. It has a sitting room, bedroom, and kitchenette, 
but no bath. He can use the sea, says Edith easily, and take a cake of soap in with him. And wash himself ashore, I suggest, and am frowned down, probably as too old for such ribaldry. Jane is very serene. Now and then as she sits on our small veranda with her tapestry, I see her raise her eyes and glance toward the other house, but she does not mention it, nor do I. I notice that, like Maggie Morrison, she does not go very near to it, but she appears to have adopted an attitude of laissez-faire. But she absolutely refused to take the pictures of the house Larkin asks for. Not that she put it like that. I haven't had any luck with the camera lately, she said. You take them or let Edith do it. The result of the collaboration, which followed early this afternoon, is still in doubt. Jane intends to develop and print them this evening. And so our life goes on. We retire early. I generally slightly scented from the cold cream of Edith's goodnight kiss. Clara, too, goes up early, probably looking under her bed before retiring into it. And Jane sits and sews while I make my nightly entry in this journal. She is, I think, both jealous and faintly suspicious of it. At ten o'clock or so we let Jock out, and he looks toward the main house and then turns out the gates and into the high road, where for a half hour or so he chases rabbits, and possibly looks for a bear. At ten-thirty he scratches at the door, and we admit him and go up to bed, behind the drainpipe. Later, I have just had a surprise amounting to shock. Jane finds she has forgotten the black japanned lantern with a red slide, which she uses in the mysterious rites of developing pictures, and suggests that we go to the other house and use the red lamp there. But I can bring it here. I am through being silly about the other house, William, she says with an air of resolution. Anyhow, the pantry there is better, and you can sit in the kitchen. Bring a book or something. She has, poor Jane, very much the air of Helena Lear's kitten the day Jock cornered it and came out resolutely and looked him in the eye. In effect, Jane is going out to meet her bugaboo and stare it down. June 29th. Jane is in bed today, and I am not all I might be, although I managed to get an indifferent print or two to Larkin this morning. It is well enough for cold-blooded and nerveless individuals to speak of fear as a survival of that time when, in our savage state, we were surrounded by enemies, dangers, and a thousand portents in skies we could not comprehend, and to insist that when knowledge comes in at the door, fear and superstition fly out of the window. It is only in his head that man is heroic. In the pit of his stomach he is always a coward. Yet, stripped of its trimmings, the empty, echoing house, its reputation, and my own private thoughts about its possible tragedy, the incident loses much of its terror, is capable, indeed, of a quite normal explanation. That is, that Jane either saw someone outside the pantry window, or was the victim of a subjective image of her own producing. To put the affair in consecutive shape, at eleven o'clock I had moved the red lamp from the den in the other house to the pantry, and there connected it. I also lighted the kitchen, and established myself there with The Life and Times of Cavour, a book which I considered safe and sufficiently unexciting under the circumstances. Jane seemed to be going very well beyond the pantry door, and after a time I ceased the reassuring whistling with which I had been affirming my continued presence within call, and grew absorbed in my book. It must have been 11.15 when she called out to me sharply to know where a cold wind was coming from, and although I felt no such air, I closed the kitchen door. It was within a couple of minutes of that, or thereabouts, that I suddenly heard her give a low moan, and the next instant there was the crash of a falling body. When I opened the pantry door, I found her in a dead faint underneath the window. When she revived... She maintained that she had seen Uncle Horace. Her statement runs about as follows. She had not felt particularly uneasy on entering the house, although I had expected to, she admits, nor at the beginning of operations in the pantry. The cold air, however, had a peculiar quality to it. It froze her, she says. She felt rigid with it, and it continued after she heard me close the kitchen door. This wind, she says, was not only so cold that she called to me, but she had an impression that it was coming from somewhere near at hand, and she seemed to see the curtains blowing out at the window. The lower sash was down, as she could tell by the reflection of the red lamp in it, but she went to the window to see if the upper sash had been lowered. 
With the darkness outside, the glass had become a sort of mirror, and she said her own figure in it startled her for a moment. She stood staring at it when she realized she was not alone in the room. Clearly reflected, behind and over her right shoulder, was a face. It disappeared almost immediately, and I have my own private doubts about her recognition of it as Uncle Horace, which I believe is post facto. But I am obliged to admit that Jane saw something, either outside the window and looking in, or the creation of her own excited fancy. As soon as I could leave her, I went outside, but I could find no one there, and this morning I find that my own footprints under the window have entirely obliterated anything else that may have been there. Jane herself believes it was Uncle Horace, but I cannot find that she received anything more than an indistinct impression of a face. She rather startled me this morning, however, by asking me if I had ever thought that Uncle Horace had not died a natural death. Why in the world should I think such a thing? But pressed for an explanation, she merely said that she had heard that the spirits of those who have died violent deaths are more likely to appear than of others who have passed peaceably away, that the desire to acquaint the world with the circumstances of the tragedy is overwhelming. What seems much more likely is that she has caught from me, with that queer gift of hers, some inkling of my own anxiety. Larkin's report from the laboratory shows that the stain on the corner of the letter is blood. One lives and learns. Not only does the report state that it is blood, but that it is human blood. Moreover, that it is about a year old, and that it is the imprint of a human finger, but is too badly blurred for identification, as it was made while the blood was fresh. So does science come to the aid of the police today. Truly one lives and learns. Larkin watched me while I read the report. You see, I said, it is human blood. What else did you expect it to be? Still, it shows something. Certainly it does, he agreed easily. It may even show a crime, for all I know. But where do you go from there? That fingerprint is valueless. Say there was a crime, where's your criminal? You can't go through the world rounding up all the individuals society ought to be warned against. No, I said rather feebly. No, I dare say not. He went with me to the door of his office and put his hand on my shoulder. Go on out to the country and forget about it, he advised. You're looking rather shot, Porter. Draw your magic circle or whatever it is about your cottage and retire inside it. Whatever happened there last year, it's too late to do anything about it now. He is right. I shall get out my fishing gear tomorrow and perhaps Edith will spare me young holiday now and then. He is, she said the other day, in the inelegant vernacular of present-day youth, about as psychic as a doorknob. June 30th. I have been brought today, for the first time, into active contact with the feeling of the country people against my house, and especially against the red lamp. It is an amazing situation. Thomas came to the doorway this morning, while I was at breakfast, followed by Starley Constable, who remained somewhat uneasily behind him. It developed that half a dozen sheep in a meadow beyond Robinson's Point were found the night before last with their throats cut. The farmer who owned them heard them billing about and ran out, and he declares he saw a dark figure dart out of the field and run into my woods at the head of Robinson's Point. It appears that the farmer, whose name is Niley, abandoned the pursuit as soon as he saw where the fugitive was headed, and went back to his dead sheep. They were neatly laid out in a row. At what time was all this? I asked. Eleven o'clock or thereabouts. How about a dog? I asked. They kill sheep, don't they? Catch them by the throat or something. They don't stab them with a knife. Not around here, anyhow, said Starr. The ostensible object of the visit was to ask if we had been disturbed that night, and for some reason or other I did not at once connect the situation with Jane's curious experience. No, I said, you'll probably find that Niley has an enemy somewhere, some hand he has discharged, perhaps. Star took himself away very soon after that, but before he left he exchanged a glance with Thomas, and I had a feeling that something lay behind this morning visit. It was not long before Thomas brought it out. It appears that Niley ran after the figure to the edge of the wood, and there stood hesitating. The woods, I gather, shared the ill repute of the house. And as he stood there, although everyone knew the house was empty, he distinctly saw the evil glow of the red lamp from it. I dare say Jane is right and my sense of humor is perverted, but I could not resist the opportunity of baiting Thomas. 
in which I realize now I made a technical error. Really, I said? Niley was certain of that, was he? Saw it as plain as I see you, said Thomas. I know you don't believe me, but I do believe you. What about the red lamp? Well, he said, it's pretty well known about these parts that lamp ain't healthy. Some say one thing and some say another, but most folks has agreed on that. Still, I don't see how it could kill sheep, do you? And even now I do not distinctly see the connection. I imagine the local belief is that the lamp exerts some malign influence, possibly even that it liberates some sinister spirit. Not, I imagine, that this is ever put into words. The nearest they come to that is the statement that the lamp is not healthy, and that George has come back. At least that is all that I can make out of that strange mixture of hysteria, superstitious fears, and local mishaps to which Thomas gave birth in the next ten minutes or so. It began with Annie Cochran in the house after the lamp came, and gradually extended into the countryside. Cows had mysteriously and prematurely calved. A meteorite had dropped into a field nearby. A fisherman's boat had been found empty in the bay on a quiet day, and its owner never seen again. Blight, pestilence, and death had visited the community, equaled only in its history by the last few months of Mrs. Riggs' occupancy of the house. And the tradition was that Mrs. Riggs had used a red lamp to call her particular spirit. George was his name, said Thomas, and by and large it gave us a lot of trouble. Let me get this, Thomas, I said. You mean that you think this George has come back? I'm not saying that, he said with his usual caution, but there's some talk of it. And killed those sheep? I'm not saying that either, but there's not a man, woman, or child around these parts would have gone into those woods the night before last, heading for the big house. I felt that I had gone far enough, and I proceeded to explain the lighting of the lamp that night. But although I saw that he believed me readily enough, it did not for a moment alter his attitude toward the red lamp. And as a matter of fact, I concluded, I think Mrs. Porter actually saw the man Niley chased looking into the pantry window. That'll have been George, all right said Thomas, and creaked heavily out of the room. To leaven the gloom of the morning, Halliday arrived today in boisterous high spirits, broken with a sort of husky emotion when he saw his quarters. It's so darn good of you all, he said, and although the words were to Jane, the look was for Edith. We all escorted him down, Thomas carrying his kit bag, I his overcoat, Jock the newspaper, and Warren himself staggering under a box of groceries and the canned goods on which he apparently intends to subsist. He has definitely refused Jane's offer to take his meals at our table, I'm the world's best cook with a can opener, he said boastfully, and when bacon and beans begin to pall on me, I'll come up for a handout. We stood around, Edith with entire shamelessness, while he unpacked and settled them. She herself insisted on arranging the top of his chest of drawers, and I saw her there, handling his hairbrushes caressingly. Poor little Edith, so frankly in love, so ready to believe that love is enough, and that such things as she has always taken for granted, food and shelter, will automatically follow in its train. Afterwards we had tea on the narrow veranda over the water, and Halliday examined the old sloop with a professional eye. Pretty well out of condition, I'm afraid. Any boat's a good boat, sir, he said with his quick smile. You shall be the skipper, and I'll be the midshipmite, the bosun tight, and the crew of the... What's its name, anyhow? There followed a prolonged dispute between Edith and the new crew as to a name for the sloop, which was compromised by their announcing that it was to be called the Cheese. Why, it has no holes in it, I protested. Because it's to have a skipper in it, said Edith conclusively. After the women left, we sat on the small veranda which surrounds the boathouse on three sides and smoked. He told me his circumstances. He has exactly enough money to finish his course, which will take another year. At the end of that time, he used to have a junior partnership in a law firm in Boston. But you know what that means at first, he said. A sort of sublimated clerical job. It will be a long time before I am independent. Before he could marry was what he meant. And again I thought of my endowment fund for lovers. There are so many funds for preserving human life and so few to make it worth the preserving. But I must talk to Edith. It is no use making the boy more unhappy than he is, or breaking down the restraints he is clearly putting on himself. I lost two years in the war, he said. That threw me back, you see. 
I dare say it was not lost. No, he agreed. I suppose a man must gain something by a thing like that if he survives. From that to the stories about the main house, and to Thomas's recital this morning, was not a long step, nor from that to the history of the house itself and to Mrs. Riggs. Curious, he said, how these people rise, prosper, and then are found fraudulent, without discrediting the next generation of their kind. Eventually they are all caught between bases and it begins all over again. But the red lamp interested him. Some night, sir, he suggested, you and I might go up there and try rubbing the thing, see if we can evoke the genie. About 8.30 tonight I took Jock and walked to Niley's farm, where the sheep had been killed. I found the field and wandered idly in. To my surprise, a man with a shotgun rose from a fence corner and confronted me, and Jock's hair rose as he prepared to spring. What do you want here? he demanded suspiciously. Go easy with that gun, I said. My name is Porter and I'm out for a stroll, that's all. He apologized gruffly while I held Jock by the collar, and even condescended to point out where the dead sheep had been found, but there was certainly no cordiality in his manner, and even a trace of hostility. July 1st. More sheep were killed last night. The Livingstons have lost a dozen of their blooded stock, and several farmers have suffered. In each case the method is the same. The sheep are neatly stabbed in the jugular vein, and then as neatly laid out in a row. We are buying no mutton from the local butcher. I assured Thomas this morning that I had not lighted the red lamp again, but he did not smile. He is quite capable of believing, I dare say, that I have summoned a demon I cannot control. But he tells me that a county detective from town, sent by the sheriff, is coming out to look into the matter and there is a certain relief in this. It seems to me that we have to do with some form of religious mania, symbolistic in its manifestation. The sheep is the ancient sacrifice of many faiths. This belief is strengthened by Thomas's statement that in each case save the first one there has been left on a nearby rock, or in one instance on a fence, a small cabalistic design roughly drawn in chalk. 8 o'clock p.m. I feel like a man who has dreamed of some horrible or grotesque figure and wakes to find it perched on his bedpost. The detective sent by Benchley, the sheriff, has just been here, a man named Greeno, a heavy-set individual with a pleasant enough manner and a damnable smile, behind which he conceals a considerable amount of shrewdness. He had, of course, gathered together the local superstitions, and he was inclined to be facetious concerning my ownership of the red lamp, but he was serious enough about the business that had brought him. It's probably psychopathic, he said, and the psychopath is a poor individual to let loose in any community, especially when he's got a knife. My own suggestion of religious mania seemed to interest him. It's possible, he said. It's a queer time in the world, Mr. Porter. People seem ready to do anything, think anything, to escape reality, and from that delusional insanity isn't very far. I suppose I looked surprised at that, for he smiled. I read a good bit, he said. My kind of work is about nine-tenths psychology, anyhow. You've got to know what your criminal was thinking and then try to think like him. The third degree is nothing but applied psychology. He smiled again. But that's a long way from sheep killing. Now I'll ask you something. Did you ever hear of a circle with a triangle inside it? I suppose I started, and I had a quick impression that his eyes were on me, shrewdly speculative behind his glasses. But the next moment he had reached into his pocket and drawn out a pencil and an envelope. Like this, he said, and drawing the infernal symbol slowly and painstakingly, held it out to me. To save my life I could not keep my hand steady. The envelope visibly quivered, and I saw his eyes on it. What do you mean, here of it? I asked, and then it came to me suddenly that that ridiculous statement of mine had somehow got to the fellow's ears, and that he was quietly hoaxing me. Good lord, I said, and groaned. So you've happened on that, too? So you know something about it? He said quietly, and leaned forward. Now do you mind telling me what you know? He had not been hoaxing me. There was a curious significance in his manner, in the way he was looking at me, and it persisted while I told my absurd story. Told it badly, I realized, and haltingly, that I had picked up a book on black magic somewhere or other, and had as promptly forgotten it, save for one or two catchphrases and that infernal symbol of a triangle in a circle. How I had foolishly repeated them to a group of women, and now seemed likely never to hear the last of it. 
As I gather, the Lear woman has spread it all over town, I said. She dabbles in spiritualism or something, and it seems to have appealed to her imagination. It has certainly appealed to somebody's imagination, he said. That's the mark our friend the sheep killer has been leaving. He was very cordial as he picked up his hat and prepared to depart. He was sorry to have had to trouble me. Nice little place I had there. He understood I was fighting shy of the other house. He would do the same thing. He didn't believe in ghosts, but he was afraid of them. And so out onto the drive, leaving me with a full and firm conviction that he suspects me of killing some forty-odd sheep in the last few nights. Probably in the celebration of some black mass of my own psychopathic devising. July 2nd. Larkin thinks he has rented the house. I made a telephone message from him, the excuse to go into town this morning. Mr. Bethel was not present, but his secretary was, a thin boy with bad skin and with his hair pomaded until it looks as though it is painted on his head. He smoked one cigarette after another as we talked. If tomorrow is fair, Mr. Bethel will motor out and look over the property. It appears that he is in feeble health. If it is not, Gordon, the secretary, will come alone. It develops that although the boy is a local product, and not one to be particularly proud of, Mr. Bethel comes from the West. Cameron's note to Larkin merely introduced him, but assumed no responsibility. As, however, he offers the rent in advance, the matter of references becomes, as Larkin says, an unimportant detail. I get the impression from the secretary that the old man is writing a book and wishes to be undisturbed, and if his choice of a secretary fairly represents him, he will be. From Larkin I learned that he had heard of the circle in a triangle from Helena Lear herself at a dinner table, and that he has no idea that it is at all widespread. He regards the use of it by the sheep killer as purely coincidence, which greatly cheers me. Nevertheless, I went to the Lears and lunched there. Helena has agreed to spread the thing no further, and I came away with a great sense of relief. Into the bargain, Lear tells me that Cameron, after studying the photograph I sent him, is inclined to think it is the result of a double exposure. Double exposure or a thought image, Lear says. He has had some success himself in getting curious forms on a sensitized plate, got the number five once, after concentrating on it for an hour. I asked him about Doyle's fairies, but he only laughed. All in all, I feel today that I was unduly apprehensive last night. The weather is magnificent. Edith in knickerbockers and a sweater has been holding nails for young Halliday today while he repairs the float. Jane has taken over from Thomas the care of the flower beds around the cottage, and has been busy there all afternoon with a weed puller and a hoe, and I have found the sails for the sloop, mildewed but usable, in the attic of the lodge. No more sheep were killed last night. I understand Greeno has put guards on all the nearby flocks, and advised outlying farms to do the same thing. Maggie Morrison told us this morning that they were doing it, but in I gathered a half-hearted manner. Most of them believe that, by his very nature, the marauder is impervious to shot and shell. Joe Welling, she says, saw something moving around his cow barn a night or so ago, and he fired right into it, but when he ran up there, there was nothing there. One curious thing, however, has been brought in by Starr, who stopped on his way past today. In a meadow not far from the Livingstone place, two large stones, which had lain there for years, have been moved together and stood on their edges, and a flat slab of rock laid across them. On top of this, when it was found, there lay a small heap of fine sand. One can figure, of course, that here is an altar, erected by the same unbalanced mind which has been killing the sheep, but no offering has yet been laid on it. Later, Halliday spent the evening here, and I walked back with him. He tells me that on his first night in the boathouse he saw a light moving over the salt marsh, about three hundred feet away. He was sitting on the small balcony of the boathouse, which surrounds it on three sides, and glancing toward the marsh, saw a light there. It seemed to float above the marsh at a distance of three or four feet, and was intermittent. At first he thought it was someone on the way to the beach, with a flashlight or a lantern, and he watched with some curiosity. Earlier in the evening he had himself walked along the edge of the swamp and decided it was not passable, but halfway through the marsh the light stopped and then disappeared. I decided the chap, whoever it was, was in trouble, he said. So I called to him, but there was no answer, and the light didn't appear again. Marsh gas, probably, I explained. Methane, CH, of course. Marsh gas burns with a thin blue flame, doesn't it? This was a small light, rather white. 
I waited an hour or so, but it didn't show again. I have, since my return, looked up the book on the Oakville phenomena which I discovered on the desk of the main house. It is not significant, but it is interesting to find that Mrs. Riggs produced fleeting lights, sometimes of a bluish green, from the cabinet, again a sparkling point which generally localized itself near her head, but I cannot find any record of a light persisting for any length of time, or following a definite course. End of section 4